If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to be starting our time here, reading from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, and then turning over to Genesis chapter 2 and reading verses 15 to 18. So hear these words from the Holy Spirit. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then on over to Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Well, perhaps nothing that we teach on or talk about as a community can can simultaneously stir up some of our deepest longings and feelings of anxiety as community. I know uh, for myself, a little bit about my story, I I didn't grow up in the church. My family went to church occasionally, but we were not deeply involved. And when I was a teenager, I, I came to put my trust in Jesus, and my family started getting involved in a local church where I grew up there in Louisville, Kentucky. And it was amazing. It was a really incredible experience going from kind of being isolated as a family to now having a community of faith. I remember the first time I was invited as a 17-year-old into a discipleship group, like a group of guys that meet together weekly to pray for each other and encourage each other. And the youth pastor bought me a Bible. It was like the first time I'd seriously cracked open the Bible and began to read it for myself. And we began to meet weekly, and it just had this really transformational impact, a deep imprint on my life, and our whole family got enfolded into this community, and we were mentored and, and taught what it means to love Jesus. My parents were taught what it means to, to follow Jesus in their marriage during a very difficult time and, and how to parent crazy kids like us. Um, and as I grew up and went on to be an adult in this same church and continued to grow and mature, this is the place where we had our first child, and, and James was welcomed into this faith community in Cooper and Lily Claire, um, and eventually Hadley. And it's where we celebrated our, our, our wedding and so many big milestones. We got involved in a, in a small group of friends and went on mission trips, literally all over the world preaching uh, and teaching about Jesus. It's where I was kind of called to ministry and got involved uh, and really discerned that God wanted me to be a pastor. And, uh, and so we've had all these really rich and formative experiences. We've also walked through so many difficult, painful things. Like I think about uh, the miscarriage of our first child. I think about um, all the ups and downs and the roller coaster of adoption and how our church came around us and just loved us so well. And so, so many beautiful things that we experienced in a community of faith. But community in the church um, can also be a place of profound brokenness. It's beautiful, and I can see some of you right now. I can't literally see you, but if I, I can imagine if you were in front of me, some of you would be like, yes, I love community. I can't wait to, that's why I'm here. I really want community. And I know different ones of you each week come up to me and just, I love this community. And it's a place of excitement and joy. Uh, most of you are in your early to mid-20s. Um, but if we're honest, it's also, I know some of you are probably sitting at home and you're rolling your eyes. Or maybe you're even triggered right now as you think about the idea of community. It, it, your body begins to tense up and maybe um, you have some negative experiences. And the older I get, the more opportunities I've had, even as a pastor, to both experience and to witness the dark side of church, right? The hypocrisy, the conflict, the broken trust, the betrayal, the disappointment, the trauma, 
sometimes even abuse in the church and hurt and protracted seasons of loneliness and isolation. And here's the crazy thing. I don't just see those things in other people. I begin to see some of those things dredged up in my own heart and my own interactions with other people. I was talking to uh, my wife uh, and I were talking to a friend of ours at the swimming pool just this week who um, is very involved in ministry and uh, has been a Christian for a long time. And, and they were just sharing and pouring out their heart about how they've left the church and how they don't even really consider themselves Christians anymore because of the hypocrisy that they've seen both online and just in their interpersonal relationships. And the church has been this place of pain that they just want to get away from. And so community has this kind of effect of being both beautiful and broken. And the question is, what do we do with that? What do we do about that? And, and here's the thing. If you read the Bible and you look back through the history of the church, I think the question we need to ask ourselves is, why would we expect anything different than a mixed bag of both beauty and brokenness, of progress and pain, of sin and redemption in the community of faith? One of my favorite authors on this topic is a, is a man named Ronald Rollheiser. And here's what he writes in his book, The Holy Longing, about Christian community. He said, the, Christian, the, the crucifixion scene is a good image of church. Jesus dies between two criminals. Anyone at the time looking at that scene would not have made a distinction between who was guilty and who was innocent. There was just one landscape, God on a cross between two thieves. That is the perennial ecclesial image, grace and sin, sanctity and pettiness, fidelity and betrayal, all part of a single horizon. And I think the point he's getting at there is that the church is always this mixed bag of, of grace and sin, of, of hurt, but also beautiful uh, redemption that we see. And it is kind of always like this place where you see God hung on a cross between two thieves. And the question is, given the depths of pain that we experience, that we often inflict on others or receive from others, why would anyone choose to be meaningfully committed to a church community? Why go through all the work if at the end of the day we're just going to end up hurt and jaded and cynical and leave the church sometime in our 40s and 50s and maybe even leave the faith altogether? How do we participate? What does it look like for us to even participate in community with a hopeful realism that's neither overly optimistic um, or uh, overly pessimistic about the possibilities of life in community? And so to that end, we're kicking off a two-part vision series um, this week and next week. And really, this is the introduction of a whole year of talking about um, our annual priority, which is this, this phrase, wholehearted community. We want God to make us a more wholehearted community. And the big idea that I want to talk about today for the next little bit is um, that community is the essential context for transformation. You cannot change. You cannot grow into the image of Christ apart from the essential relationships that God has placed you in in a faith community. And so I want to talk just a little bit about how that happens and how that ties into our vision as a church, because it's essential. It's, it's critical to understanding how we see spiritual formation or change or transformation happen in the context of our spiritual lives. So our mission as a church is to see the gospel change everything. We want to see the good news of Jesus's reign and his rule, his justice, his love, his peace break out and transform and integrate every aspect of our lives. Now that's easy to say, but often hard to live out. If you've ever tried to do that just for five minutes to allow the gospel to really change you, it can be a very uh, painstaking and slow and e even a process that seems like we're not making a whole lot of progress. And so what we need in this uh, process to really live into that is a working theory of change. Everyone needs to have a working, livable theory of change. In other words, like 
How does that happen? What's the nature of that change, and how does it actually take place? And for many of us, we've tried. We've tried to just believe the gospel, and we'll even have these little simple ways of saying, you know, just believe the gospel, just believe the right things about God, or go to church, and, and you'll change, as if it's some kind of an automatic process that God does through osmosis. And the reality is many of us have failed despite our best efforts, despite applying willpower, we, we continue to find ourselves falling short in terms of true and lasting transformation. And, and my contention, and, and many spiritual writers have noticed this and have commented on this, that we often fail not for a lack of effort, but for a lack of training in a reliable process that yields the results that God has for us. And so I want to introduce you again, and we've talked about this before, but to uh, this concept of, a, of our triangle of transformation. This is how we see the process of change happening in the life of a Christian. This was articulated most recently by a man named James Bryan Smith. He's a professor of spiritual formation out at Friends University in Wichita, Kansas. Um, and he kind of adapted this from Dallas Willard, who's kind of one of the patron saints of discipleship for Soma Church. And so here's uh, how he articulates this. And again, this is not like a formula as much as it is a reliable process that the Holy Spirit seems to use throughout uh, the Bible and throughout church history to bring about change in his people. And so you'll see in the middle of this triangle, the Holy Spirit, right? God's empowering presence. No change happens without the work of the Holy Spirit. You can read 2 Corinthians three eighteen to learn more about that. And the Spirit works as he works through um, first truth, right? God's presence in our lives, revealing ultimate reality, transforming these, these narratives and these perceptions and interpretations that we have about life that often get hijacked by deception and false ideologies. And so the Holy Spirit brings the truth about who God is and about who we are into our lives and begins to re-script and re-narrate uh, reality uh, into the core of our, our minds and our bodies. And then that gets kind of habituated into practices, right? Practices are these habits that retrain our minds and our souls and our bodies and move us towards what's good and true and beautiful. It's a recalibration away from what's not true and what's not good and what's not beautiful towards the good. And then all that takes place in the context of the community, which is kind of the incubator for uh, the birthing process, the transformation process that God works in our lives. And I just communities, just these vulnerable, trusting relationships with other disciples. And that's really what I want to talk about today for the remainder of our time is what does it look like for us? How has God designed us to experience change in the context of community in a profound way? And, and what does that mean for us? And how do we actually get into that? So in order to do that, I want to take us back to Genesis chapter 1 again. Um, Genesis chapter 1 uh, is foundational. We teach on this a lot because it's really important to understand how God made us, because the way that we were created, our design dictates our destiny, how we live our lives. And so this truth that we see here in Genesis chapter 1 in terms of community is that we are created from community and for community. We're created from relationship and for relationship. Notice there in chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, God says, let us create mankind in our image. When God is talking about here, he's not schizophrenic. God is, is using this intentional language, us. Uh, he's speaking in, in the plural because he is a trinity. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, actually as an eternal community. This community, like the center of reality, is a community of love, uh, a community of relationship, uh, this joyful, peaceful, trusting, uh, kind of knowledge-based 
community of love. And within that circle of trust, within that circle of sufficiency, you could say, God is exchanging love and knowledge and, and peace between the members, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's this kind of eternal community of mutual love. God knows what it's like to be loved. God knows what it's like to be known deeply. And from this relational reality, God creates relational beings in his image. In other words, to be like him in our capacity to give and receive love, to know and to be known. Right? This is super important um, because as we go on to chapter 2, one of the fundamental things God's trying to address here is, one, obviously for us to reflect him in the world and represent him in uh, our creative capacities and our relational uh, connectivity capacities. But he's also addressing a fundamental reality for human beings. One of our greatest fears God addresses in Genesis chapter 2 when he says it's not good for man to be alone. One of our greatest fears as human beings, arguably, is to feel abandoned and alone. This is an ancient struggle. This didn't just start in modernity, although we certainly experience loneliness and isolation as a mental health epidemic in the West and particularly in America today. Vivek Murthy, who was a former U.S. Surgeon General, said that the most prevalent health issue in the country is isolation. A couple of years ago, the United Kingdom appointed a minister of loneliness because they felt like the government needed to intervene in this, in this epidemic of isolation. Loneliness is linked to all kinds of uh, negative behaviors. Uh, it's linked to an increased risk of, risk of cardiovascular disease, stroke, the progression of Alzheimer's. It's worse than smoking, and in many cases, even leads to premature death. So loneliness, we know, and isolation that comes out of our loneliness seems to be a real threat to our health as human beings because we were created for relational community. Now, here's the question that I ask myself as I've studied this passage over the years, is why in the world would God create loneliness as a, as a, as a fundamental feature of humanity? Why was there loneliness before sin entered the world? And here's the thing. This is not some kind of a, uh, an admission of a hidden design fall. When God says it's not good for man to be alone, this is not God like some kind of product designer going, oops, there's a bug that needs to be worked out of the system. Remember, God created the world exactly the way that he wanted to. And so what we see here is that actually loneliness, um, yes, it can be dangerous. Yes, it can be a threat. But this is a revelation, I think, of a hidden design feature, right? So in other words, God is naming this reality of loneliness. He's inviting Adam to recognize this loneliness as something undesirable and unsustainable for sure, but as something that's intended to awaken us to our hunger for relational community. Loneliness drives us to reach out in connection and compassion and care to God and to other people. It's an invitation, actually, to something beautiful about our humanity, meaning we can't go alone. We can't do it alone. We need other people. It's not an indictment of something fundamentally broken in us. Um, isolation is the brokenness. That's the, that's the thing we want to avoid. But loneliness is uh, an invitation to relationship. And so one of the things we learn early on from Genesis is that we cannot be fully human, nor are we able to fulfill our divine calling, our human vocation, by ourselves. We need partnerships. We need community. We need relationships. And that's why God gives Eve to Adam. That's not just about marriage. We were, we were not designed, and hear me say this clearly, especially if you're single, we were not created for marriage. We were created for community. Marriage is an example. It's an expression. It's an illustration of community. But we know that Jesus was single. Likely Paul was single. There are a lot of single people that lived throughout the Bible that have flourished as human beings. And so the, the core reality there is that we were created for 
relationship. The other thing we see in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is that communion with God is the basis for true community. Communion with God is the basis for true community. It's interesting to me here that Adam was lonely, but notice he was not alone. He was not isolated. He walked and he talked and he communed with God. And we see this throughout Genesis chapter 1 and 2. He'd walk in the cool of the evening and stroll in the Garden of Eden. I mean, imagine what a walk, right? Like looking out at a perfect creation, enjoying perfect communion with your heavenly Father. And so um, what, what we learn here, again, is that in order to experience whole community or wholehearted community, we need to be whole people who are in loving communion with a whole God. The goal of community can't simply be community, right? A community that's centered on the goal of community will always turn into idolatry and will always fall short, will always disappoint each other because community is not robust enough to sustain itself. It needs a higher power. And biblical community, particularly, has to center on God and, and must have supernatural transformational love and life in order to sustain it. Otherwise, our experience of the human community left to its own devices will always be injustice and idolatry. So we need community, is my point, to flourish as human beings. Now, what's exciting to me is if you read outside of theology, the rest of the world is beginning to uh, come to grips with this and actually affirm these insights that we see that are very basic to the scriptural narrative. Um, If you read uh, kind of from an interdisciplinary perspective. You can look at neurobiology. There's a whole new field in neurobiology called interpersonal neurobiology. Daniel Siegel, who I'll quote here in just a minute, is one of the leading experts in that. You can look at psychology. You can look at sociological research. All the disciplines are beginning to uh, kind of attest to this reality that wholeness and well-being are largely determined by the nature and the quality of our relationships. I'll quote Daniel Siegel here when he talks about the brain and the life of the mind in his book, The Developing Mind, he says, to put it simply, human connections shape neural connections, and each contributes to the mind. Relationship experiences have a dominant influence on the brain because the circuits responsible for social perception are the same as, and this gets kind of technical here, but hang with me, the same as or tightly linked to those that integrate the important functions controlling the creation of meaning, the regulation of body states, the modulation of emotion, the organization of memory, and the capacity for interpersonal communication. What he's saying is that relationships literally shape and reshape our brains. From our earliest relationships, before we can even think rationally, we are influenced by, and our brains, the neural connections in our brains are literally shaped by our attachments, our relationships with those who are supposed to be our caregivers. And so um, as they help us and as they harm us, it shapes our brains and literally gives us our prefrontal cortex the ability to regulate or integrate different domains within our brains and also between us and other people, which then has all kinds of implications for how we trust, how we love, or how we don't trust, and how we don't love. And so we see that well-being is really contingent on, in many ways, our, our ability to connect interpersonally. And that's the way that God has designed us to flourish as human beings. Now, fast forward to the rest of the Bible, fast forward to the New Testament, and you see God doing the exact same thing. So we know that in Genesis chapter 3, and we'll talk more about this next week, um, humanity sinned against God and tried to be their own uh, Lord and Savior. And uh, since that time, God has been in the process of redeeming, restoring his image in us as his image bearers. It wasn't completely lost, but it was distorted yet. Yeah, you can't go a sermon uh, at Soma if you're hearing that uh, outside without hearing 
uh, sirens go off. So that's okay. But um, we see that God is restoring us back to, the, to his image. And when he goes in Acts chapter 2 and the Spirit begins to create the church, God, we see that God also, um, not only does he create this relational community at the beginning, but as he recreates our, a new humanity, a new relational uh, community, this is the way that he heals us and restores us back to his image is by putting us in a relational community. So I want to throw up Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. If you've uh, been in the church for any minute of time, you've probably heard these verses, and I'm not going to read them through, but I just want you to look at this passage, because Acts is a really interesting kind of recapitulation or reenactment of Genesis. We see the Holy Spirit hovering over the church, coming down in the church, just like in uh, Genesis chapter 1. We see Babel reversed and the nations brought together instead of scattered. We see this relational community recreated in the image of God. We see temptation from the evil one, and we see death and, and the multiplication of God's blessing go out from the church to all the nations in the book of Acts. But I want you to notice a key thing here in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. When people came to believe in Jesus, the Bible says that they were added to the number of the church. And that's really important because oftentimes we emphasize our personal relationship with Jesus, but we forget that to be in relationship with Jesus is to be in relationship with his people. And so we see there that spirituality is personal, but it's never private. That's really important for us to hang on to. We never come into a relationship with God alone, but in the context of other followers of Jesus. And we see the church exploding and that community growing. What do we see in this new community of faith? What does it look like to be a community of faith? We see all of the elements here in Acts chapter 2 in kind of seed form that get unpacked and developed later on throughout the Bible. Some of the core things that we see in a community of faith, we see shared commitment. We see shared affections. We see shared practices. We see a shared mission. We see shared power, right? Like shared commitments, this idea that I'm for you, I'm with you, I'm not going anywhere. Shared affections, they shared their hearts with one another. Shared practices of like generosity and prayer and just the basics of what it means to be a disciple, to be with Jesus and to become like him and to do what he did. They had a shared mission to, to spread the gospel of Jesus outside of their community um, and to glorify God with both their words and their actions. And then they, they experienced this shared power. And I would argue that is the ideal of Christian community. And I think it's better, honestly, than any of the other distorted alternatives that um, we see in kind of our host culture in the West here in America. I mean, when you look at Christian community and you contrast it with some of the other options on the table, there's two kind of predominant ways we tend to think about community. And we can often carry these ideas with us if we're not careful and critically evaluating what shaped our ideas of community. Um, we can bring these into the church. And so the first one we see is uh, kind of this rugged individualism, right? Me over we, me over the group. And that's kind of how America was founded in many ways, was on this ideal of the autonomous individual. And this has picked up speed in recent decades, I would argue, even through like consumerism and digital technology and prosperity. Um, one sociologist, Robert Ballard, calls this uh, this phenomena of what we call community today. He would actually call it lifestyle enclaves. These lifestyle enclaves where people gather together, groups come together, and they coalesce around shared affinities, usually leisure or consumptive practices or things like that. And these, these affinities kind of validate our sense of self and reflect back to us our own preferences and commitments. So if you take a look at your core relationships, even though you'd say, I have a diverse group of friends, uh, there tends to be something that unites you around an affinity, whether it's economics or maybe it's your uh, ethnic background or maybe it's um, where you shop, the kind of coffee shops you like, the kind of food you like. 
Um, that's what Balaam would call a, a lifestyle enclave. And so uh, that's one option. On the other side, we see, um, and actually growing up out of, in many ways, individualism, is tribalism. This is where we put the group ahead of the individual. In many ways, tribalism started as a, as a reaction to, or maybe just the end result of, this kind of rampant, excessive individualism, right? Because lonely people eventually need groups. And what's happened over the last couple of decades is these groups have come together and uh, David Brooks, who's an author uh, and a journalist, he, he writes uh, opinion pieces in the New York Times, uh, wrote a book called uh, The Second Mountain and the Road to Character. And he, and he talks about tribalism as individualism's dark twin. He says the lonely individual is now placed into a group where they become codependent on this group for their sense of identity. And in these groups, they're usually defined by one particular characteristic of the individual, whether it's race or class, or gender, or socioeconomic status, or political affiliation. And, and these groups are defined not by mutual love, but by mutual hate. They're not defined by what they're for, but rather what they're against. There's a scarcity mentality that exists in tribalism that's really dangerous. And it looks like community, but it's actually a pseudo-community. It's a, it's, a, it's a really bad copy of community. Brooks goes on to say, uh, in his uh, book, he says, the tragic paradox of hyper-individualism is what began as an ecstatic liberation ends up as a war of tribe against tribe that crushes the individuals that it sought to free. So these are kind of the two main offerings out there for us in terms of community. And, and the biblical uh, alternative is something really countercultural and altogether different. It's not me over we. It's not we over me. It's actually uh, more of an interdependent relationship, right? Where I am a person in community, where my needs and my goals and my desires matter, but also I have to constantly be, you know, in some ways um, giving up those things or surrendering those things for the good of other people, for the, the needs and the desires and the dreams of the community. And so let me just give you a real simple definition of Christian community so that we're clear about what we mean and don't mean. Christian community is a web of stubbornly loyal diverse, wholehearted relationships knotted together in Jesus into a living network of maturing persons. Now, that's a mouthful, but I think it captures a lot of the ideas that we see throughout the Bible centered on Jesus, not on community, not on affinity, not on what neighborhood I live in, not uh, what class I'm a part of, um, not how much education I have, but centered on Jesus. It's a diverse community of all kinds of different people coming from different backgrounds, wholehearted relationships. We'll talk more about that next week. And, and all of this is this living dynamic network of people who are seeking to mature and heal and grow together in Jesus. And where else can you find this? I mean, where else can you find a community like the church with all of its messiness, with all of its brokenness? There's a beauty to what God's doing in the church that you literally cannot find anywhere else. I defy you to find this anywhere else in the world. Maybe AA would be like the only other place that would have something similar to this. And AA was started by Christians and is based on a lot of Christian principles. But this diverse community is, it's hard. It's hard to live into. Uh, Parker Palmer, one author, writes this, we might define true community as that place where the person you least want to live with always lives. So we have this kind of ideal, but it's really hard. And, and that's what we see throughout the rest of the New Testament letters is Paul and, and Peter writing letters to churches to address relational issues because diversity sounds good in theory until you actually have to live it out with real people in the real circumstances of life. And so these relational issues call us to maturity. They call us to wholeness in Jesus. And community is essential it is not optional for transformation to the wholeness that God 
desires for us in Christ. Listen to this quote by Robert Mulholland, one of my favorite writers on the spiritual journey that God has us on and, and how that works itself out in community. He says this, if you want a good litmus test of your spiritual growth, simply examine the nature and quality of your relationship with others. Our relationship with others are not only t- the testing grounds of our spiritual life, but also the places where our growth toward wholeness in Christ happens. There's a temptation to think that our spiritual growth takes place in the privacy of our personal relationship with God, and then once it's sufficiently developed, we can export it into our relationship with others and be Christian with them. But holistic spirituality, the process of being formed in the image of Christ, takes place in the midst of our relationships with others, not apart from them. Every relationship has the potential of becoming the place of transforming encounter with God, and every advance in the spiritual life has its necessary and immediate corollary in the transformation of our relationship with others. Community is essential for wholeness and transformation back into the image of God in us. And why is that? I mean, it it should be kind of obvious in some ways, but we resist it. I know I do. I don't like it. I don't enjoy that process. I kind of constantly fall into this thinking that I can do this alone. But here's why. In relationships, the areas of our lives that don't look like and love like Jesus are constantly brought to our attention, right? The person who thinks they're patient until they have children, or until they get married, or until they have a roommate. And then you realize, oh, I'm not as patient, I'm not as kind, I'm not as generous as I thought I was. When there's an opportunity to display generosity with a, a true person in need, it's like, well, let me pray about that, let me get my spreadsheet out. I, I don't actually know that I have the margin to do that, right? Like, it surfaces these incongruencies in our relationship with God, areas where we need to continue to be formed. They get exposed in the context of real relationships. The other thing is, um, if, as Siegel says, it's true that our, our, our hurts and the trauma that we experience actually shapes our brains and disintegrates our brains, um, if our primary hurts happen in relational context and how we then respond to those, that's really where sin enters in. It's not necessarily what's been done to us, but how we respond to what's been done to us. Then our primary healing will also happen in those relational contexts as we relearn how to love God and to learn, love others and even, in some ways, to love ourselves as we exist in woundedness. And so the family language in the New Testament speaks to the intimacy of these primary attachments and the need to replace the mistrust in our souls and relationships because of sin with trust and with openness and with curiosity and with compassion. Trust is the currency of relationships. Trust enables us to be present to others without defensiveness, to be vulnerable, to be compassionate, and be connected. So let me just close our time with just a few quick encouragements to you in terms of kind of thinking about community, where you're at right now, where I'm at right now. So just some pastoral wisdom for us and some invitations as we wrap up this message. First, I want to encourage you to honestly assess the quality of your relational community. What do your relationships look like? Are you growing in compassion? Are you growing in connection? Are you growing in care? Are you becoming a more lovable person, a more loving person? Are you becoming more patient, more kind, more gentle? Like, Take an honest look at your relationships. Ask others, how are you experiencing me relationally? Are you experiencing me as open or defensive? Are you experiencing me as warm and, and, and generous or as stingy and, you know, kind of a scarcity mindset? Like, Take an honest assessment of the quality of your relational community and ask God, God, what might that say about my growth in terms of my spiritual and emotional health? I was created for community. I need community. Without community, I cannot thrive. And we need to look honestly at the quality of our relationships and 
and seek uh, God's wisdom on that. Secondly, um, we need both structure and flexibility to thrive in community. We need structure, right? Like community requires intentionality. We don't just fall into it organically. It takes a lot of work. We need consistent rhythms. We need rules that guide us or practices that guide us, especially during a time of pandemic. We need structure to help form and shape our sense of self and, and help us grow towards Christ-likeness. And so at Soma, that might look like getting involved with the discipleship group, men or women who meet together on a regular basis to practice the way of Jesus. It could look like getting into a missional community, a larger group of people that are committed to the same thing. Whatever it is, I want to encourage you to think about healthy structures as really critical to your flourishing. And at the same time, we need flexibility, right? Uh, we, li- we are living in a time of crisis, a time of global transition. Um, we're aging, we're getting older, we're moving through different seasons of life. We have different emotional struggles that impact what community looks like for us. So we need to give ourselves permission to embrace some limitations and some of our losses, and to look for the invitation to community that might look different in this season than, than another one. So when you were single, community looked very different, and it probably looks uh, as you're married, as you have young children, as you have teenagers, as your uh, teenagers leave the house and go off to college, community's going to look different, and so don't, don't trap yourself to a particular expression of community, but be flexible in how you see community, but just make sure that you're in community and that you're not um, fooling yourself or living uh, in some kind of an illusion that you actually have community. But just be kind to yourself and give yourself permission to explore and to look at community through a different lens. We need all kinds of different communities and expressions of community to become all that God's designed us to be. Third thing, we have to learn how to stay in community through the pain and learn to hold and redeem the tension of an imperfect community, right? We all have this ideal of community that's not real, right? The reality of community is not what we thought it was going to be when we first signed up for the church, right? All of that excitement gave way to disillusionment and maybe even despair. And the reality of church is, as Rollheiser says, it's a mixture of progress and pain, of success and struggle, of beauty and brokenness, of healing and hurt. We're going to battle demons in community, right? The demons of shame and guilt and fear and sadness and loneliness and isolation. Just like in the Genesis and Acts stories, we're going to be tempted to bail, we're going to be tempted to violence, we're going to be tempted to abandon one another, to move away from each other, or to move towards one another with aggression and assault one another and hurt one another, whether that's verbal or physical or emotional. And so most of us, if we're honest, have not been taught the skills on how to stay in those places of pain, how to work through from a place of wholeheartedness, conflict and forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation. And so we need the body to help us do that. And we're going to talk about that in detail next week, and I want to invite you to come back as we talk about what it actually looks like to engage from a place of wholeheartedness. The last thing I'll say is we we need to remember the bigger story, right? Like the, the credibility of the church in this moment characterized by so much division, so much pain. The church has such a missional opportunity to be a counterculture to a culture of violence and a culture that does not, if we're honest, know how to love each other well. I mean, apart from the supernatural love of God, we don't know how to love. We can't sustain the kind of love that's required for true, authentic, biblical community. Man, what would it look like for the church, for your missional community, for your discipleship group, for your marriage, for your relationship with your children, for us as a church and our relationship to other churches uh, around the city to be outposts of hope and love and justice and grace and forgiveness and blessing. I believe that we will win many of our neighbors to Jesus in these next months and years through the credibility, not of our rational, airtight arguments, but through the credibility 
of our love. And that's exactly what Jesus said. They will know you. They will be attracted to you by the quality and the nature of relational, loving community. And that's why Jesus died. Jesus died on the cross. He suffered in his body the worst loneliness and isolation. He cried out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father turns his face away. He turns his presence away. For the very first time, Jesus experienced utter loneliness, utter abandonment, utter isolation so that we could be brought into a relationship with our heavenly father. That is the good news of the gospel, that we are not alone, that the true other, the true community that we need more than anything else is that of the father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's why Jesus came to reconcile us back to our Father, to give us the love and the grace that we need to then move out and to extend that to other people. And so that's the invitation to you to trust yourself to Jesus, to trust yourself to his process, to trust yourself to this imperfect body called the church so that God may continue to do this work of transformation in us, not only for the sake of us, but also for the sake of those in our community who don't even know Jesus yet. And so that's exciting to me. That is a compelling why, and I hope for you that you'll consider and honestly look at your community this week and to ask God what it looks like for you to continue to grow and mature as the church community is essential for our wholeness and our well-being. Let me pray for us. Father, give us grace this week as we press into community. I know there are so many hurts and so much pain, and God, I pray that you would meet us in that place of pain. God, there's also a lot of joy here, and I pray that you, I pray you would amplify and multiply that joy as we experience the messiness of community. God, would you help us to live into this vision, to be this stubbornly loyal, diverse, wholehearted community, knotted together in Jesus into a, net, a living network of persons. God, would you make us all that you've designed us to be this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.